Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hey, thanks for joining me. If you're a regular listener, you probably already know that I get to chat with a whole lot of amazing musicians, and I don't take that privilege at all lightly. It's actually because you're interested in hearing from the people who make the music that so many of them are willing to talk to me in the first place. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart for all your support. Maybe you could tell a friend or two about A Breath of Fresh Air. I'd be super grateful. Now, I'm excited today to introduce you to a man whose name you may not immediately recognise, but whose songs you definitely will. His name is Roger Wood, and he's one of Britain's most prolific songwriters. Over his long international career, Roger has had more than 80 top 30 hits. He first came to prominence during the British invasion, usually working in tandem with singer-songwriter Roger Greenaway. As you're about to hear, the pair hit it really big with the oldies radio staple, You've Got Your Troubles, but they continued to crank out hit after hit for years to come, including classics for artists like Cilla Black, Gene Pitney and the Hollies. Today, Roger Wood is perhaps best known for his song, I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, which was recorded by the New Seekers and became the theme song for a long-running series of Coca-Cola commercials. I hope you enjoy Roger's story. Roger, your career is just astounding. I'm never going to be able to cover the entire course of it during one interview. I think we'd need a series of 10 different interviews to go over everything that you've done because you're incredible. You've got to be awfully proud of yourself for all your achievements. Well, I've spent the money, let's put it that way. <laughs> what did you spend it on? Oh, drugs, sex, rock and roll, and the rest I wasted. Sounds like you've had an awful lot of fun. No, I'm just joking, actually. No, yeah, I've had a great life. I mean, what kind of life could you wish yourself? You know, I wanted the right songs and I've made a living. Roger wrote his first song in 1958 and that same year recorded a few sides with a vocal group called The Sapphires. He next sang with a group called The Londons, splitting off with bandmate Jill Stevens to form John and Julie in 1962. The duo recorded a bit but broke up when Jill became pregnant. Roger then spent about a year away from music and then began performing in theatrical productions as a mime, but came back to singing in early 1965. You actually started singing at about the age of 11. When did the desire to write songs actually kick in? Well, I joined this what we call a doo-wop group. It's a close harmony group. We had a guitarist, and that's all we had, our accompaniment. And when I was 18, this guitarist wrote a song for the girl singer to sing in the band. And I was so jealous, I thought, how bloody hard can it be to write a song? I'm going to write a song. And I sat down and wrote a song, and it was so simple and so easy. So I thought, well, I can do this. And I started writing songs. And this, this was 1958. So you're telling me there's no great skill involved, or you just had the knack? Well, what it is, if you listen to music and you love music, and I did, and you listen to great songwriters and you listen to their songs, in the end, you know the shape of the song. And if you sing like I did, I was in choir board for like five or six years. And if you sing a lot, then you learn to carry a tune. And when you can carry a tune and you know what's possible, then it's easier to write a song. So 1958, you say you wrote your your very first song. You really came to prominence during the British invasion, didn't you? You started writing a whole lot of songs in tandem with Roger Greenaway. Can you tell us how that came about? Well, Roger Greenaway was was in his own doo-wop group. In 1963, my group had already faded and gone away. I was working in what they call a pantomime in Cardiff in Wales. And I get a call from a guy who says, Roger Greener really wants to know if you want to join his group. Well, now, his group is really good, and they worked a lot, opening for people like the Beatles and that. So I said, oh, yes. So I joined up with Roger. Tonight, 
and they toured the British variety circuit. The group also featured future studio vocalist Tony Burrows, who split for a solo career not long after Roger joined up. The two Rogers stuck together though, forming a partnership and working as session singers meantime. We knew I wrote songs and I knew he wrote songs. And it was on a, a tour where we were opening for Herman's Hermits that... Uh, he said to me one day during the break, you know, a matinee break, he just said, I've got this little tune. And he played a little bit of a tune to me. And I said, I like that. He said, do you want to write it with me? I said, yes. Our very first song we wrote together was called You Got Your Toes, I Got Mine. And uh, to have a world hit with your very first song it was amazing. It was awesome. I mean, a lot of things came about with it. Uh, we, we demoed the song, Roger and I in uh, early 65, and the song went out to a few producers, and George Martin, the Beatles producer, heard it. Of course, he was the hottest thing in the world at the time. And uh, he asked if we would go to his office and talk to him, so we did. And he said, I love your song, I love the way you sing it. He said, "Um, can I produce you with it? Could he? I should say so. We had one little problem. He was spending the next three months finishing up an album with the Beatles called Rubber Soul, one of their, you know, iconic uh, albums. Of course. had to wait three months and during that three months another band went in the studio and cut it. It was a band called The Fortunes and they ended up with a big hit. It was a mixed mixed feelings. We had a big hit all over the world. Now we're looking for a house and a new car but it could have been our hit and so we had mixed feelings about it but you know like ourselves spent the money. <laughs> Can't complain too much about that then. I see that worried look upon your face You've got your troubles I've got mine She's found somebody else to take your place You've got your troubles I've got mine I too have lost my love today You've Got Your Troubles by The Fortunes was a top 10 smash hit. In its wake, the two Rogers began to record as a soft pop duo that was known as David and Jonathan. 
That was just the first of so many that you've written. You, you went on then in, in 66 to do a cover of the Beatles, Michelle, didn't you? Yes, we did. We actually covered it in 65. It was a, a sorry thing from George. He said, look, I know we missed the boat with you, got in trouble. She said, but the boys have got a song called Michelle on Rubber Soul, the, the album just finished. He said, I think if you could work up a version of it, we can put it out. And so we did, and George recorded it with us, and yes, we had the top ten in the States with it. Michelle, my belle, these are words that go together well, my Michelle. Michelle, my belle, sont les mots qui vont très bien ensemble. I love you, I love you, I love you That's all I want to say Until I find a way I will say the only words I know That you'll understand Michelle Roger Wood and Roger Greenaway were just on fire. At this time too, The Fortunes released their follow-up hit, This Golden Ring, and Gary Lewis and the Playboys scored a top 10 hit with Green Grass. Both were Greenway Cook creations. Green grass round my window. the cover of the Beatles' Michelle continued gathering momentum, storming up the charts to become a worldwide hit. We started visiting the States. We had to go and promote that record, which was great. To be English in 1965 and have a top ten hit in America, we were like little gods everywhere we went. It was awesome. But I had the strangest feeling, and I'm almost certain about this, that people thought we were John and Paul incognito. And so we'd have hundreds of girls outside the radio station, and you can almost feel this palpable kind of, oh, when they realized it wasn't John and Paul. <laughs> but yes, we did start visiting the States quite a lot. We started doing a lot of Coca-Cola jingles. Ah. The people at Coke who produced the jingles for Coca-Cola, they really liked the Fortunes record, and they wanted us to write songs for the Fortunes to sing for Coca-Cola, which we started doing. Of course, we had a a pretty good long history with Coca-Cola. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle dove. But really, life couldn't have gotten any better for you at the time. It was a fairy tale. It really was. It was awesome. And I was just 25, you know, when we had our hit run around the world. And we also had a hit as um, singers, you know. So, yeah, it was, it was totally awesome. Nothing shared, dreams have died and no one cared. 
Lovers of the World Unite. That was our, our first biggest hit that we'd written ourselves. Songwriting is something that you'd always wanted to do. There was never any other chosen career path for you. Well, actually, in the beginning, it was a second seat to sing, and I wanted to be a singer. And I, if I said to myself, I could carry a song really well, I, I could sing to it. And uh, so I thought I could be a professional singer. And with that first little D-Wop group in 1958, we actually won a local TV contest. And somebody recorded us and put out a record. And we went on the road for two or three years, thinking, you know, we were going to be big stars. Well, we weren't. In the end, most of the guys went back to regular jobs. But I stuck in it because I was really certain that my career was singing. And... Uh, the songwriting was just a backup, really, in a way. I wrote songs because I wanted to sing songs that I wrote. Right. As simple as that. And uh, thank God it worked out. Weatherman, you ought to meet my baby. When she smiles, the sun comes shining through. Got no worries when I'm with my Every sky of gray she turns to blue Don't you tell her you should be my baby She don't need a crystal ball like you When she kisses me I see Baby was the last single that Roger Cook and Roger Greenaway released together under the name of David and Jonathan. In 1968, they decided to call it quits, although they did continue with their songwriting partnership. Stay tuned as Roger tells us where his incredible career headed next. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Great to have you here. We've already heard how the successful partnership between Roger Wood and Roger Greenaway blossomed and how their songwriting talents led to a string of hits for a host of different artists. He kept writing and then joined pop band Blue Mink in 1969 as a featured vocalist. Blue Mink scored a host of UK hits through 1973 and Roger says that the one we all know and remember them for, Melting Pot, definitely remains one of his all-time favourites. It more than worked out, didn't it, because you've gotten to sing so many of the songs that you wrote. Which one would you say is your favourite? Of all the songs? Of all the songs you wrote that you sang. Well, I must say, when writing and singing with Madeline Bell with Blue Mink and Melting Pot, that was a big thrill.
were writing about there in Melting Pot in 1973 seems to be so appropriate still. Well, yes, it's kind of a weird kind of situation in the end. The BBC banned it in the end because people were complaining, like 20 years after the fact, that it was racial. <laughs> well, I did use deliberately, I used slang terms in the song. I did that deliberately, just uh, as a, a point of humor in a way. Anyway, somebody complained who'd never heard the song before. They heard it on the BBC and they said, oh, you shouldn't be playing that song. Curly black and kinkers mixed with yellow chink is, is too racial, you know. And so the BBC doesn't play it anymore. <laughs> That's <Hey>. crazy. <laughs> yet, yet the message within it is about how everybody does need to be in a melting pot and come out in one race and it doesn't really matter what colour you are, right? Wouldn't it be neat if we were all the same colour? We could finally put that crap behind us, you know, and just get on with life, you know. I mean, we'll always be tribal. This world is tribal, I mean, to this day. And uh, I don't know why people just hate each other because they're of a different race or a different whatever background. What was going on in your life at the time that prompted those lyrics? Nothing much except um, I joined the group and the female singer in that group with me, we sang lead together, she was black and I was white. And so it seemed like a really good subject to say, hey, that's a bunch of crap, let's put it behind us, you know. Because she'd come from Newark, New Jersey. She moved to England in 63. And in those days, those days um, Jim Crow was alive and well in America. She loved being in England where she was treated as a lady. And really the skin color didn't matter. It made her more exotic than anything else. And so I think that's the reason I wrote Melting Pot. It was really to kind of explain her and I up there on stage together. Madeline, where is she today? Are you still in touch? Well, Madeline at the moment, I mean, she she works a lot as a solo act, and uh, she lives in Spain at the moment. She has lots of cruises. She plays um, jazz clubs and everything in London and that, and all over. She has a great career going. Of course, she has to sing Melting Pot every time she goes out. Of course she does. They insist she sings that. Yeah, yet, yet Blooming had a series of hits under their belt, didn't they? And, and how long were you together before you split up? We stayed together for five years. And after five years, I wanted to move away from England. I felt like I was kind of pigeonholed as a writer, you know, pop songwriter and that's it. And I had so much more I wanted to write, so I decided I wanted to go and live in America where I could write anything I wanted, you know. <laughs> and that's what turned out to be. Oh, it sure did. I mean, you wrote Long Call Woman in a Black Dress with uh, Holly's lead singer Alan Clark that became the, the Holly's biggest American hit in 1972. You couldn't put a foot wrong, or a pen wrong, perhaps. Riding out with Alan, I still they still play it to death over here. I mean, you hear it's kind of in elevators and uh, shopping malls and everything. You hear it everywhere. It's just one of those songs. It became kind of a cult rock thing. 
and uh, I'm awfully thankful. I don't have many songs that are still being played as much as that one, 50 years from the date we wrote it, you know. Yeah, so does a, a little smile comes across your face if you're caught in an elevator and that one comes on? Oh, yeah. I want to turn around and say to everybody, that's my song. <laughs> but, of course, I don't. No. I just yeah. smile. But it's got to be really gratifying, though. It's, it's like really warming your insides to know that you've left an indelible mark on the world's popular culture. Yes, it is. I mean, every one of us in this world, you know, wants to achieve something in their lifetime. We're all ambitious when we're young. The two Rogers came together again to write a top 10 US and UK hit for the band White Plains. This group had evolved from the late 60s pop psychedelic band The Flowerpot Men and featured Tony Burroughs on lead vocals. Many of the band's songs were written and produced by Greenaway and Cook, including this one, My Baby Loves Love. back over a long life in our music so it's been great moving to Nashville and becoming a hit songwriter in Nashville meant a lot to me it was another career and something I had to challenge myself with and learn how to write songs that the country market would like and well I managed it <laughs> what what took you to Nashville in the first place well I moved to America in 75 and my wife at that time said, go away for a couple of months, go and have a look at America if you want, and see where you want to live. And I spent a lot of time in New York, and I loved New York. If I'd been single, I might have stayed there. It was a great, great town. But I didn't think I could raise a family there. And I went to L.A. for about six weeks, and I thought, no, this is not for me. And talking to someone one day who'd been to Nashville and spent time here, he said, you should go up to Nashville, Tennessee. I said, well, I don't write country music. Why would I go to Nashville, Tennessee? He said, because you'll love the people, you'll love the musicians. And the studios are great and everyone's so friendly. And it's a long 10-month summer and you'll enjoy it. So I went up for a week and stayed 46 years. It was the split with Roger Greenaway that prompted the move, was it? Or was it the, the, the fact that you wanted to make a move to America that prompted the split? Which was the chicken and the egg? Well, I became very aware at the age of tender age of 35 that you really only got one life on this earth anyway to go and do something. And I, I, I needed an adventure. By the same, Roger and I had had everything go our way in 10 years. We just had a, a marvelous time. But I felt that I needed an adventure of some kind. I needed to jump out somewhere and do something and challenge myself all over again. I felt I was in a bit of a rut. All right, it was a somewhat hit, somewhat rough, but it was a rough, you know. And I came to Nashville, and um, the challenge immediately was, how can I get a hit in Nashville? Because my previous career didn't mean much in Nashville. You got to have a number one country hit. And after two years, I finally got a big hit with Crystal Gale with a song called "Talking in Your Sleep," and that opened the market up for me. I became a known entity, you know. And it became easier. And then, then Don Williams started cutting the songs and George Strait and people like that, you know. Three o'clock in the morning And it looks like it's gonna be another sleepless night I've been listening to your dreams and getting very low Wondering what I can do 
Maybe I'm being foolish Cause I haven't heard you mention anybody's name at all How I wish I could be sure it's me that turns you on Each time you close your eyes I've heard it said that dreamers never lie You've been talking in your sleep Sleeping in your dreams With some sweet lover Holding on so tight Loving her the way You used to love me Talking in your sleep With loving on your mind Maybe I'm being foolish Cause I haven't heard you mention Anybody's name at all How I wish I could be sure It's me that turned you on What did you discover about writing country songs that was different from writing the pop songs that you'd found so much success with in the past? Well, the lyrics are very important. The reason it took me two years to write my first country hit was because my lyrics were too English. And somebody told me that one day. They said, your melodies are great, but they're a bit too English in lyrics. You know, you need to drop all those Englishisms and and, and write more country or, or songs that can be sung country. And Talking In Your Sleep was a pop song, really, but it got cut by a big um, American artist. So what were those Englishisms that they were talking about? What are those basic differences that wouldn't cut it in Nashville? Just the shades of language. English is different to American. No question about it. I can't quote examples right off the top of my head. But they're like two different languages in a way. We understand each other, but barely, you know. And uh, people here still think I sound very English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, so you really had to get into the whole American kind of culture and way of speaking, way of thinking in order to turn it out in their language. Yes, and they like story songs. Country okay. people love story songs about people's lives that they can relate to themselves because, oh, I've been there. Right. Whereas with a pop song, you can write anything you really want. If it's got a great melody and it's got a great feel to the record, you can have a hit whether they understand the lyric or not. That's interesting. I didn't never knew that, that distinction at all. And, of course, the lyrics that go into country songs that people can relate to often have to be really sad, don't they? They can't be kind of happy country songs. They're always laments of, of one ilk or another, aren't they? Well, yes, things go wrong a lot in country songs. <laughs> and I think that's half the attraction, you know. But also, you know, if you throw in the truck and the kids and grandma and the, and the dog, you know, you're going to get somewhere with country music. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, I guess that means that people who like country music kind of like to r relate to their music in terms of, of their suffering, and yet the English or the, the other part of the Western world who like the pop sort of music tend to celebrate good times a little bit more. I would say that's fairly accurate, actually. That's, that's, that's about it.
Disorders there from Carol Douglas, yet another hit written by Roger Wood. Coming up, Roger is inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Welcome back. I hope you're enjoying famed songwriter Roger Cook's story. I asked him what makes a country music hit. They like to identify with the lyrics. In fact, you just tell the same story over and over again with slightly different lyrics, and they're accepted. Country breakups, heartbreak songs, in country music have been written since the year ago. And they're all the same, all about breaking up and maybe getting back together again, or, you know, who's going to keep the dog, you know. So what's the difference between blues and country then? The lyrics could be the same, it's just the melody that's a bit different. Well, they're actually, they are familiar with each other, blues and country. They understand each other. The blues came a lot from the suffering of the South. Even though blues, the blues did move up to St. Louis and so on and such, they moved up there because people left the South. And so people who were living in the South, whether they were white or black, shared a lot of the same stories. And they're very similar in, in styles, actually. Except with the blues, you can say the same line over again over and over again for three or four lines and uh, people will think that's just great. <laughs> <laughs> you could go and lecture at the university and, and dish all of this up and it's, it's fabulous. You obviously found your challenge then and you've conquered the challenge in, in writing country music because from 1983 you wrote Love is on a Roll with the late John Prine. I can't work late although I need the money Gotta get home They're waiting, waiting impatiently. Love is on a Love is on a Roll went straight to number one for country singer, songwriter and 2010 Country Music Hall of Fame inductee Don Williams. The song kicked off a collaboration for Roger and John Prine that would last many years. Although his writing activities did tail off as the 80s wore on, at the end of that decade Roger scored another hit with Mark Armand's remake of Something's Gotten Hold of My Heart, a song that featured duet vocals from original artist Gene Pitney. In 1998, Roger Wood and John Prime found themselves back on top of the charts. We had a big number one with George Strait too, a song called I Want to Dance With You. And that was huge. And we actually ended up getting, well, of course, we got paid for the song, but we ended up with the dance song of the year. And believe you me, you can write any kind of hits in the world, but the right to dance on the year was like, we were tickled pink with that. I don't want to be the kind to hesitate and be too shy, way too late. I don't care what they say other lovers do. I just want to dance with you. I got a feeling that you have a heart like mine. So let it show, let it shine If we have a chance to make one heart of two And I just want to dance with you I want to dance with you Twirl you all around the floor That's what they intended dancing for And I just want to dance with you collaboration process look like for you? It's chemistry. You sit down with someone else and you come up with a line, they go, well, yes, but how about if it's this way? It's a very social thing, songwriting with somebody else. 
they just help you write. They help you uh, come up with ideas of your own. You go backwards and forwards on a line and you end up with the greatest line. Whereas when you write by yourself, sometimes you set up a line that works and you don't challenge yourself as much when you write with somebody else. Right. So have all your fellow collaborators worked out well for you? Just about. Just about. I mean, there are people I write with all the time who I've not had a hit with, but we don't give up on it because I find being prolific in the end leads to success. The more you write, the more, the better a chance. The more horses you have in the race, the better a chance of winning it, you know. So you just keep turning them out. So I write two or three songs a week now. I, I haven't quit in 50-odd years. I haven't quit writing a lot of songs. And you feel you're just as creative now? Well, I'm a better songwriter now. I tend to write a song now trying to understand how the voice is going to sing it and open up the voice in certain places on high notes with certain vowel sounds just to make the singer sound good. Now, that's a skill I had to pick up over the years. I wasn't born with that skill. I'm a better songwriter now, which doesn't place me in the position of having bigger hits all the time. That doesn't work out. Great songs, nobody wants your great songs. They want your hit songs. The great songs, you're lucky if they end up on somebody's album. Unless you're a singer-songwriter like a John Prine, you record your own great song. So which would you say has been your greatest song? Oh, that's very hard. And there are people who think Long Cool Woman and Black is a great song. I happen to think that I Believe in You by Don Williams is one of my better lyrics. I felt quite proud of that one. And it was a big hit. I don't believe in superstars, organic food and foreign cars. I don't believe the price of gold, the certainty of growing old. That right is right and left is wrong. That north and south can't get along. That east is east and west is west. And being first is always best. But I believe in love. I believe in babies. I believe in mom and dad. And I believe in you. Well, I don't believe that heaven waits for only those who congregate. I like to think of God as love. He's down below, he's up above He's watching people everywhere He knows who does and doesn't care And I'm an ordinary man Sometimes I wonder who I am But I believe in love I believe in music I believe in magic and I believe in you. You also had that massive hit with I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing that uh, both the Hillside Singers and the New Seekers did. You'd have to be pretty proud of that one too, wouldn't you? I, I was never really proud of it. Roger and I wrote a 58-second jingle with two guys from New York, and we got paid, and that was the end of that. And the radio jingle went out, and it didn't really happen much. And then Coca-Cola one day said to McCann Erickson, the people who produced the jingles, they just said, uh, we're looking to have a kind of anthemic song, you know, for the world, you know. Of course, it's the early 70s, and that was what was going on, you know. You're my brother, you know. Anyway, uh, they decided to video a commercial, you know, do a commercial with these kids on the hillside, and the thing just went out of control. Oh, but like I say, Roger and I wrote a 58-second jingle and forgot all about it. So I kind of, for a while, people were introducing me when I sang live as, uh, here's a man who taught the world to sing. And I thought, screw you, I don't want to hear that. You know, I've, I've, I wrote so many other things, you know. But since I've been in America, I find that old people know the song very well. Young kids sing it in, in school. It's almost like a folk song now. and. Uh, so I've grown to feel a little happier with it now. I'd like to build the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turkeys. 
were just scoring hit after hit after hit. I wonder whether your head was exploding with success or you just became blasé about all of these hits and thought, eh, you know, another one. How were they affecting you? I guess it's like anything, if, if you get too much of it or so much of it, you just take it for granted. Is that what was happening with you? Well, that's a difficult question to answer, really. I left England in the end because it was getting blasé. I was getting blasé. There was a, didn't seem to be much of a challenge out there. Uh, the year, two years before I left, we had 11 hits in one year in the English charts. Now, that's ridiculous. That's pure greed, you know. And so I was getting blasé. And I, I was clever enough to realize that, you know, I, it was going to end very soon. I would never get back into that pop thing in England. So I wanted to move to America, where there was a greater challenge in a way. There. That was a long answer, wasn't it? No, that was a very good answer, a very wise answer. Thank you, Sandy. I'm really enjoying chatting with you, Roger Cook. I'm excited to let everybody know that in 1997, you became the first and so far only Englishman to ever be inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. There's an honour for you. That you couldn't have just tucked away and gone, <laughs> so what? No, that was that was special. It was very special. Um, I thought, oh, that night, all these people out there, all these great songwriters out there in the audience, yeah, it was great. And I, only, I did that on the back of writing country songs, not on my pop career. But Roger and I, we did in, when was it? Uh, it was early, early in the 2000s. We got inducted into the American songwriter Hall of Fame. And that was a big throw, and that was based more on our pop hits, of course. Right. So, you, so. You, you've managed to reinvent yourself twice already. And you're a man who keeps looking for new challenges. What's the next challenge? Maybe you'll move to Australia. Ah, well, you know, I want to visit Australia. I've got some friends there, actually, and uh, I'd like to visit Australia one of these days just because I wouldn't have any trouble with the language, apparently. You'd have to learn and, a little uh, bit of our slang. I love the Australian people. I mean, I love their attitude to life. I've got a few Aussie friends here in Nashville, and... Uh, we get along really well. I'm sure you do. But is there another challenge that you're setting yourself or are you uh, happily writing your two or three songs a week and you don't care whether they're hits or not hits anymore, you're just cruising? Well, there are every song, you know, I mean, I want recorded, of course. There's a challenge every, every week when I write. But I've written, I've written musicals. I have one musical on in London with my buddy Les Reed. And uh, I've just currently finished the musical. It's all about Golda Meir. It's called Next Year in Jerusalem, which is a famous Jewish saying. I'm about to start maybe another one. I, won't, I can't give away the title on that because I'd get in trouble. But anyway, to get a big musical on stage and have it run for a couple of years, now that's a challenge. <laughs> and I'm sure you're just the man and going to conquer it. What uh, inspired you to write about Golda Meir? Uh, well, I got together with my friend, he became my dear friend, Lionel Bart, who wrote the show Oliver. And uh, I said to him, I'd love to write a show with you one day. He said, well, we can do that. And uh, I thought, oh, well, that's awesome. So I said, well, he said, well, have you got any ideas? I said, yeah, I think Charlie Chaplin would be a great person to write a show on with all the choreography and everything. He said, no, no, not in space. He said, I'd like to write a show about Golda Meir. I said, oh, okay, yeah, we could do that. And so for six months, we stayed in his attic in Soho and, and wrote um, the show. Congratulations, Roger Cook. Thank you so much for your time. What an absolute pleasure to chat with you. You're remarkable. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you for being a wonderful interviewer. You so make you it really see. easy. Thank you very much, Sandy. Bye for now. Roger Cook there, one of the world's greatest modern songwriters. And that's where I'll leave you today. Thanks so much for keeping me company. Please don't forget if you'd like to request a guest, just send me a message through the website, abreathoffreshair.com.au, and I'll do my very best to get that person onto the show for you. I hope you'll join me again same time next week. Until then, have fun, won't you? Bye now. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm -hmm. 
You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.